Thank you, Dr. Scott Winnale, and happy Sabbath to all of you, and welcome to all our guests. We have 164 here today, so very happy to have you with us. This past week has been very exciting. You heard in the announcements, Dr. Meredith has written a co-worker letter updating everyone on Living University, and we also welcomed our first on-site students, Living University students, in an orientation meeting on Thursday. Uh, Dr. Meredith gave a very inspiring overview of the purpose of recapturing true values and a vision for education in tomorrow's world. Classes begin on Monday, as you just heard, and we encourage you all to take the Living University Distance Learning course, Courses, and we encourage you to take the Tomorrow's World Bible Study course. Uh, as you may know, we have 120 nations that are taking the online course. The last one was Slovakia, so we have someone taking uh, even the Bible study course in Slovakia, all over the world. And I think there is about 170 countries uh, represented by the hard copy of tomorrow's World Bible study course. And I hope that all of us have a desire to learn and to grow. There was a woman who, 92 years old, said, it's never too late. This is Estelle Race Arroyo. She's 92 years old and will prove it when she picks up her diploma from California State University, Sacramento. This was this past May 22nd. I'm reading from an article about this 92-year-old graduate. The Grass Valley woman took some college courses at UC Berkeley after attending high school in the same town. She also attended or entered Diablo Valley College in the Bay Area at the young age of 60, but didn't finish. After retiring at Nevada County several years ago, she said, I was looking at too much TV. TV information comes to you, but you don't do anything, Arroyo said. I was worried my mind would turn to mush, so I decided, come hell or high water, to go back to college. She went to Sierra College first, where she earned associate degrees in social science and liberal arts at age 90. Arroyo then decided to complete her degree at Sac State, or California State University, Sacramento, at age 92. So how many of you are 92 that would like to get a degree? We should never stop learning. We should never stop growing. Now you say, well, 92, that, that's... Uh, you know, that's pretty old, but here's a Taiwan 96-year-old grad student, and this is from Taipei, Taiwan. A 96-year-old Taiwanese man will receive his master's degree in philosophy, a master's degree, graduate degree, at age 96. He said he was able to compete with younger students by pulling all-nighters before exams. His name is Chao Muhi, better known to his classmates at Nanha University in southern Taiwan as Grandpa Chao. He began graduate school after being too, told he was too old to continue as a volunteer at a local hospital. I was bored after I left the hospital, Chao said Thursday. I don't play mahjong and have other hobbies. I felt I had to do something with my life. In London, a spokesman for Guinness World Records said she could not say if Chow is the oldest recipient of a graduate degree because the company does not keep records in this category. Chow said the most difficult part of his studies was coping with a poor memory. 
I can't remember things as well as my fellow students, he said. So before a test, I would wake up at midnight and study all night. That way, the material was still fresh in my mind when the test began. He specialized in the work of Chao Tzu, a 4th century B.C. Taoist master. A spokesman at Nanhao's graduate school, where Chao will get his degree Saturday, confirmed that he was born on July 4th, 1912. Chao, who lives alone, said he was uncertain about his future plans. I just want to stay healthy, he said. So here's a 96-year-old who not only got a bachelor's degree, but got a master's degree at age 96. Now, if a 92-year-old and a 96-year-old can get college degrees, don't you think that some of you can still learn and still study? We had the announcement by Dr. Scott Winnale that uh, senior citizens are eligible for tuition discount at Living University. So I encourage you all to take advantage of that. So I want to ask you today, are you growing? Are you learning God's truth more completely? Are you maturing spiritually? God has called us in His kingdom to be kings and priests. And part of that training involves problem solving. We need to analyze the problem. We need to propose a solution. We often face such challenges daily. And as we apply the seven laws of success, one there are several strategies, of course, for solving our problems. You know, in our worldwide financial crisis, some have proposed a solution for failing businesses. They think of certain mergers of various companies and think that will solve their financial problem. Here are some of the mergers that have been uh, proposed. Polygram Records with Warner Brothers and Zesta Crackers join forces and become Poly Warner Cracker. Uh, Zippo Manufacturing, Audi motor, motor Car, Dofasco and Dakota Mining will merge to become, of course, Zip Adi Duda. <laughs> and Federal Express, Express is expected to join its major competitor, UPS, and consolidate as Fed Up. <laughs> John Deere and Abidity Price will call their new company Deere Abbey. And Honeywell, Imasco Home Oil will call themselves Honey, I'm Home. And finally, Motorola will step in and save the failing company Enron, and they will become known as Moron. <laughs> well, we know there are biblical solutions to the world's problems, those who will not solve the world's crises. How close should we be to God? Let's turn to James, the fourth chapter. James 4, and here is such a inspiring mission. Mr. Armstrong used to call them the two initiatives here in James, the fourth chapter. Verse 7, James 4, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the one initiative Mr. Armstrong talked about. The second initiative was, Verse 8, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And sometimes we feel distant from God. And we need to think of this verse, draw near to God, and claim that promise. And I call, I call on God. I say, Father, I'm drawing near to you. You've promised to draw near to me. And I claim that promise. 
And of course, to draw near to God means that you have to spend time with Him. How close should you be to God? Let's take a look at that in Jeremiah, the 13th chapter. Jeremiah 13. Here is a very graphic example of how close we should be to God. Jeremiah 13 and verse 11. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, it's almost you have a belt around your waist, God says, So I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Eternal, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. So God said He has caused them to be like a belt, a sash around His waist. The King James has it a little more graphically. For as the girdle cleaves to the loins of a man, so have I caused you or to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel. How close should you be to God? I think those uh, images give you a little idea of how close we should be to God. John 15 and uh, verse 4. Jesus said, and you know that kind of close relationship that we have with Him, In John, the 15th chapter, he says, He's the vine and we're the branches. John 15 and verse 4. He says, Abide in me and I in you. How close of a relationship is that? It's intimate. It's an intimate relationship. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That is, you cannot do anything lasting. The one solution for the world's problem is to merge into God's love and nature by drawing close to God. And that's one way, of course, to achieve spiritual maturity. Three weeks ago, we discussed five types of maturity, and we also briefly discuss three of seven keys to spiritual maturity. So today we'll review those types of material maturity and continue discussing the seven keys to spiritual maturity. God tells us to grow. He tells us in Ephesians 4.15, I won't turn there, but as you're familiar with that, he says to grow up in Him, in all things, into Him who is the head Christ. So we have a command, we have an instruction to grow up into Christ. In 2 Peter 3.18, you all know, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So both of these scriptures tell us to grow. So again, I want to ask you, brethren, are you growing? The title of the sermon today is, Are You Growing Spiritually? Let's first review those five areas of maturity. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 1 Corinthians 6, here we have physical maturity, a responsibility God gives us towards our body and the significance of your body. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, as it should read, which you have from God, and you are not your own? Your toenails, your arms, your legs, you know, your heart, uh, all of your organs, nerves, the muscles, your digestive system, every part of you belongs to God. And it's the temple of God's Holy Spirit. 
He goes on to say, For you were bought with a price, at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we have a very significant responsibility in taking care of our bodies. Many of us are physically mature, but are we taking care of our bodies? Are we applying the seven laws of radiant health, of avoiding bodily injury? You know, uh, it's very, very easy to have accidents, and you need to understand how can I avoid accidents. We are taught in defensive driving, for example, that you need to drive defensively. And how many of you have taken a um, driver's lessons or driver's course? Okay. All right, good. I think most of you know how to drive defensively, but we need to avoid bodily injury. And then, of course, one of the most important ones is to maintain a positive and tranquil mind. And there are several here that have just a wonderful attitude of uh, positiveness. Uh, Mr. Partian is a wonderful example of being positive. Whenever anyone says something negative, he says, be positive. So he gives us that encouragement. But it is so true. Maintaining a positive and tranquil mind helps our bodies. The second area of maturity after physical maturity is mental maturity. How do you keep a healthy brain and a healthy mind? I pointed out last time from one research that showed the three major elements for healthy minds are exercise, education, and social connectedness. Uh, There are these senior citizen groups that are The people in their 80s and 90s, they're playing bridge, these ladies, and their minds are being stimulated. And they are having, they are encouraging healthy minds. Of course, what uh, reduces the health of minds is hypertension, uh, diabetes, smoking, and other abuses. And I encourage you, of course, to uh, hear the sermon, Love God with Your Mind, which is sermon number 540. As God tells us in Mark 12, 30, to love him with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the Greek word for mind is denoia, meaning understanding, full thought. So he wants us to be mature mentally. Remember Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to show that that mind was the mind of a servant, that his whole purpose was to serve. And that's the kind of mental outlook we need to have. Well, while we're there, let's turn over to Philippians, the third chapter, because we see here the connection to maturity and mental alertness and having the mind of Christ. Philippians, the third chapter, and verse 14. Again, we can't uh, just stagnate. We can't just be self-satisfied. We have to keep pushing ahead. And I appreciate Dr. Meredith's leadership. He's always asking us, how can we do better in our television? How can we do better in the Internet? How can we do better in our publications? How can we do better in in serving the brethren around the world? And he's not satisfied with the status quo. And that's wonderful leadership. We appreciate that leadership deeply. Here in Philippians, the third chapter in verse 14, the Apostle Paul didn't uh, stay self-satisfied. 
He said in Philippians 3 and verse 12, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as have to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, note that, have this mind. And if you, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So if you are sincerely seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if you are, as the Apostle Paul, really stretching forward towards the kingdom of God, then you will have a mind that is more mature. So if we're mature, we must seek God's mind. We must all mature mentally. We must also mature socially. And that, of course, is brought out in the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I mentioned last time that some of us lack social skills. And some of those social skills can be easily, that is, lack of social skills, can be easily remedied by just a few words, being able to say, please, thank you, I'm sorry, you know, please forgive me, you're welcome, and how may I serve you? Those phrases will help you get along much easier. And then there are those who have certain phobias or are antisocial or a little fearful. But again, the second great commandment says that we need to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I know as an engineer in the past, you sometimes work very well alone in your own cubicle and you're working with things, you're working with procedures, you're working with research. You know, but God says that we are part of a family. And even if you are, as I was, as you say, uh, I used to think I wanted to be an engineer and now I are one. We used to think of those terms, but uh, we still want to have that social connectedness because that's a part of the very purpose of our being. And 1 John 4.18 is one of those fundamental principles of getting along with people. Perfect fear, perfect love, sorry. Perfect love casts out fear. And if you have nervousness being with certain people or certain uh, situations, public speaking is normally the number one phobia that people have, um, maybe number one or number two, depending on the survey. But if you have a message, you love your audience, that perfect love will cast out fear. First John 4, verse 18. And that should be a part of our social maturity. It's a way of love, a way of give, a way of honoring others. One of the down or disadvantages, one of the negative approaches for social maturity is gossiping. And I'm sorry to say that some of that occurs even here. And we need to know that that is not social maturity. We need to understand that gossip, gossipers will not be in the kingdom of God. Let's turn back to Leviticus 19 and verse 16. Leviticus 19 verse 16. Again, the second great commandment. How do you get along with other people? It's very important. And you note here that uh, God says in Leviticus 19, verse 16, 
You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. That's a command of God. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the eternal. Now, whenever God says, I am the eternal, that means you better take note and take very serious consideration of what God is saying. Uh, Mr. Gerald Weston gave a sermon along that line entitled, I Am the Eternal, Your God, sermon number 381. He goes on to say, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Eternal. So the third area of maturity is loving your neighbors and maturing socially. Fourthly is emotional maturity. I mentioned last time about a man I was counseling who had gotten married at age 18, and at age 39 he told me, I'm now just mature enough to be married. He had not matured emotionally. We need to help others, of course, who don't mature, and... uh, we need to ask ourselves, does our mind control our emotions or does our emotions control our mind? And that's the key of character. Character is the ability to make sure that you can choose the right and persevere in doing the right until it becomes solid character, a part of who and what you are for all eternity. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. Here again, we are to help those who may have emotional weaknesses. And hopefully we are strong enough emotionally because we've been tested. We've gone through tests and trials. We've experienced tragedies. We've experienced setbacks, failures, all kinds of trials and problems. And yet God has brought, it through, brought us through it. And we're still alive, and we're still, as the Apostle Paul, seeking the kingdom of God first. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, or insubordinate, or idle, as the margin has it. Comfort the faint-hearted. The King James has uh, weak-minded, I believe it was, something along that line, but it's really faint-hearted, those who need encouragement. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. So we need to help those who are emotionally weak and give them encouragement. It tells us, of course, to be angry and do not sin in Ephesians 4.26. And let not the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So some of us... Uh, don't get excited about anything. You know, uh, we need to get excited about what is unjust, unjust, what's wrong. You know, Proverbs uh, 8.13 is, The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, but the perverse mouth do I hate, God says. So the ambivalent individual, the Laodicean, doesn't care. I don't care you know, if this evil is going on or that evil is going on. No, we need to be stirred up to hate evil. And, of course, that's uh, what it tells us in uh, Ezekiel 9, 4, that those who are going to be protected through the Great Tribulation are those who sigh and cry 
for the abominations that are committed. It's those who give assent to all kinds of evils, as it tells us in Romans, the first chapter, that are not going to be in God's kingdom. But we need to grow in spiritually mature. We need to grow emotionally mature. And how do we do that best of all? Well, by bearing the fruits of God's Spirit, the Spirit of love, of joy, and of peace. And, of course, uh, the other fruits of God's Spirit as well, of faith and meekness and self-control. So a fourth area of maturity is emotional maturity. Uh, Jesus, of course, expressed his emotions, Hebrews 5, 7, with strong crying and tears. <clears throat> and I know it's, uh, I've told you the story before about uh, the lady who was dying of cancer and just was controlling, in a sense, of her husband. And, and finally, when I talked to her, knowing she was dying, that she did need to be able to express her emotion. She wouldn't, she wouldn't cry or shed any tears. And told her she needed to work on that. And uh, the ladies that served her, this is back in 1965, and we were accused of not being a Philadelphian church, but I'll tell you, there were 33 women who came night and day to help this woman who was dying of cancer. We were Philadelphian, I'll tell you. And uh, when she called her husband over, he sat up. She said, well, pull me up. And so she sat up in bed with her arms around her husband. Before, she would have said, you belong to me, buddy. But in her last day of life, she said, I belong to you. She had a different emotion, a different approach towards life and towards her husband. The lady said she did have tears in her eyes later, and she died that night. But have you shed a tear? Jesus was heard with strong crying and tears, Hebrews 5 and verse 7. So let's examine ourselves and see if we can mature more emotionally. The fifth area is spiritual maturity. As I mentioned last time, young people can express a spiritual maturity far beyond their chronological age. Five-year-olds, ten-year-olds, fifteen-year-olds can express a spiritual maturity far beyond their chronological age. Jesus was twelve years old when he went to the temple. And it says in Luke 2, verse 50, 53, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men at 12 years old. And those of us who have taught at youth camps, I taught at the summer educational program in Ora, Minnesota, several years, Big Sandy, the same thing, and, and also, of course, in Pickford, uh, Michigan, for our LYC camp. And what our students know when they think about the commandments that they are wiser than their enemies, as it tells us in Psalm 119, verse 97. Because they know the standards for right and wrong. They know that it's wrong to murder. They know that it's wrong to commit adultery. They know that it's right to honor their father and their mother. They know that it's wrong to covet and to lust. And so our students, teenagers, uh, preteens, when they're in their grade school, they can sort out the wrong values that are being taught by their teachers. 
They have a wisdom that is far beyond their chronological age. We need a spiritual maturity. As Dr. Schindler wrote in his book, How to Live 365 Days a Year, quote, maturity is just what it sounds like, the ability to react to life situations in ways that are more benef beneficial than the ways in which a child would react. Of course, when we come to bigger trials, we need experience, and we need that counsel that we heard about in the uh, church bulletin. So in Ephesians 4, verse 15, as we quoted earlier, Speaking the truth in love, we need to grow up into Him, that is Christ, in all things. So we need to grow, we need to mature spiritually. We've just briefly discussed those five types of maturity, physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual. Now let's go on to the seven keys of spiritual maturity and turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> And here the Apostle Paul says this, gives us this insightful principle about maturity. 1 Corinthians 13, what is going to mature us? Applying the greatest gift, which is agape love in our lives. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. The first key to spiritual maturity is demonstrate concern beyond your own little world. The me generation, it's, it's my life, my car, my house, my possession. It's an emphasis on my little world. And not thinking about the trials and tribulations of those who are earthquake victims or typhoon victims and thinking about Bangladesh when Mr. Herbert Armstrong spoke to the leader of Bangladesh he said of all the nations that I have visited this is the most poverty stricken nation that I have ever ever visited and you realize that people there build their homes on the on the uh, surface where the coastal areas are that are very vulnerable to flooding and they're forced to, in a sense, because the, the politics of, of uh, where you live and where you don't live uh, imp, uh, influence those particular results. So we need to know and have that concern of people around the world and to be praying for those. that We are not the me generation. We are the generation that is preparing for peace for everyone on the face of the earth. And we love everyone on the face of the earth. As Dr. Meredith said in that co-worker letter a couple of years ago, every single person on life on earth is precious. You think of the person there standing on the corner saying, I'm homeless. You know, that person is a potential member of the family of God. Every human being, and those that we may denigrate, those that we may look down upon, every single one is a potential member of the family of God. And so we need to make sure that we live beyond our own little world, have concern beyond that. And that as we pray for others, 1 Timothy 2, well, let's turn there. Again, it's a part of our training as kings and priests that we realize, yes, we must intercede. We plead the cause of others who are in trouble and those who are enemies we even pray for. But 1 Timothy 2, therefore I exhort first of all, 
that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Remember, not only is that our practice, we pray for others, but why? What's the ultimate purpose? Verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So there are those who are blinded. And you pray for those who are blinded, that maybe someday God will open their eyes. And it may be just one little act of kindness that you've done for someone that changes their whole attitude and their whole approach. I give you a minor example. I I had some conflicts with uh, a couple uh, of my fellow students in the dormitory in Ambassador College in Pasadena. And at the time, you know, students would have this trick where they pull, practical joke they call it, where they short sheet you. What happens is that they take the sheet and pull it way up so that when you put your feet into the bed, you're, you're stuck right at the top of the top of the bed. And I thought, when I got back from a long day, my roommates had pulled down my sheets and the pillows. I said, aha, they're going to short sheet me. Well, no, they hadn't. They had just been kind enough to make my bed ready for me when I came home late at night. My whole attitude changed towards these guys. Uh, these carnal guys, I love these guys. You know, these are, they changed, they did something kind to me, which was totally out of character, I thought. But making that kind of change can have an influence on others, a profound influence. Every little kindness that we do may help someone else. So we pray for others. We intercede for others in our prayers because God gives you that prerogative and that privilege of asking God to be patient with whoever, my friend, my wife, my husband, uh, my boss, my employee, uh, my friend, my fellow student. Be patient with this person and pray that God will work with them, that they might, again, someday be called and be a part of his kingdom. So key number one to spiritual maturity is to demonstrate concern beyond your own little world. And that's why we watch world news. We're concerned with the trials and tribulations and the poverty and the and the injustice of people all over the world. Number two key to spiritual maturity and how we can grow is facing reality. Again, let's turn to Luke 21. You've read it dozens of times, if not perhaps hundreds of times. But nonetheless, it's so vital to our spiritual growth and our spiritual life. Luke 21. And, of course, he starts earlier here in verse 34, the importance of watching. Luke 21, verse 34, but take heed to yourselves. I mean, you need to be alert. You're not sleepy spiritually, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life that that day come on you unexpectedly. We're praying for the kingdom of God to come. God speed that day, we often pray. And some of us even say in, in our sermons or in our public prayers, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 
And so as we look out into the world, we see abominations. We see horrendous oppression and evils and abuse all over the world. And we say, Father, your kingdom come. We want your kingdom to come. And even now, the, as we've already pointed out, that the world is experiencing global recession. And we have to keep reading the Tomorrow's World magazine, the tele, seeing the telecast. And uh, I quoted to you last time from Dr. Meredith's uh, article in Tomorrow's World magazine, Face Reality. We need to face reality. And, of course, the world from time to time, much of the world is in the state of escapism. And every kind of escapism is what we involve ourselves or become addicted to, whether it's video games, not that a video game is wrong of and by itself, but addiction to those types of things takes you away from reality. So we have to watch. He wrote in that Tomorrow's World article, September, October 2005, Tomorrow's World magazine, Face Reality, and you, our readers, do not have to wait very long to see what we're talking about. The events we have been predicting for years in the pages of this magazine are already beginning to occur and will continue to occur with increasing impact and momentum. We at Tomorrow's World can be God's watchmen for you and your loved ones if you are willing to listen, to study, and to prove these things for yourself. Again, we have to be alert to what is going on. As Dr. Schindler wrote in his book, page 78, How to Live 365 Days a Year, maturity is able to distinguish fact from fancy. It is a characteristic of a child to accept a fancy as a fact and not to try to differentiate between them. However, if the child grows into responsible adulthood and still cannot distinguish between fa fancy and fact, the results are a terrific amount of trouble that means misery and wrong emotions. If we are to grow in spiritual maturity, we must learn to face reality. Uh, Jesus said in John 16:33. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So key number two to spiritual maturity was face reality. Key number three is bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6 and verse 2. In a sense, that crosses over with facing reality because we try to understand the pain, the suffering of another individual. Sometimes it's difficult depending on how the person communicates, to understand, as we hear the expression, where is he coming from? That means what experiences or challenges had this individual uh, been experiencing that produces this kind of communication pattern or these questions or this questionable behavior? Where is he coming from? Galatians 6 and verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we have to have that compassion and try to understand. I know as a minister, and I'm sure some of our other ministers have been told the same thing. A woman who's suffering and said, well, Mr. Ames, you don't know what I'm experiencing. You don't know how I'm suffering from this cancer. Well, that's true, ma'am. I don't understand from cancer, but I understand what it's like to suffer. And I have suffered extreme pain. And I can identify with your pain because I have experienced extreme pain. And so we bear one another's burdens. As he tells us in Galatians 6 and verse 9, 
And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are, are of the household of faith. Let's turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 18. <clears throat> so we bear one another's burdens. We understand the pain, the suffering. And, of course, sometimes people are too proud to ask for help when they should ask for help. And we hope that uh, none of you are that way. If you are, you need to humble yourself and ask for help. God's people are here as your family to help you when you are in need. First Peter, the second chapter, and verse 18. We had a Bible study on uh, Peter last week. We'll have a follow-up in a few more weeks. First Peter 2, uh, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. That's remarkable. Can you do that? For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. We need to be willing to suffer if we're going to bear one another's burdens. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? How should you take correction? Patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. How should you take correction, unjust correction? Patiently. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. So be willing to suffer for your brother or your sister. Christ learned by the things that he suffered, Hebrews 5 and verse 8. As Helen Keller said, I quoted it last time, Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. And if there's anyone in here who has not suffered, well, well God is blessing you in a particular way. Well, thank you. You know, you'll be very thankful for that. And you want to thank God every day for whatever measure of health, of well-being, of mental peace and contentment you may have. You thank God every day for that. But you still at the same time are willing to bear one another's burdens. God comforts us, and we need to comfort others. And that's in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. You know, you think about... Uh, Job and his friends. You know, here Job was suffering, and his three friends came, and what did they do? They sat there quietly for seven days without saying a word. They were, in a sense, being compassionate uh, to their understanding of how to respond to the situation. Second Corinthians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So when you realize you have gone through a trial, you have been comforted by God, you can share that experience in trying to help and comfort others. The third key to spiritual maturity is bear one another's burdens. It just occurred to me that while 
uh, Job's three friends uh, were sympathetic for seven days. They really got into him the next day and had to be corrected later on. Number four is to fulfill your responsibilities. And we've had sermons on that subject before. And, of course, the parable of the minas and the parable of the talents uh, give us the main axioms or the main principles of fulfilling your responsibilities. Remember in Luke 19.17, he said to the faithful servant, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. Let's just turn there, Luke 19th chapter, because not only is there a blessing for fulfilling your responsibilities, as we, as Jesus pointed out there in Luke 19, but it also comes with a warning. And that's why the question, are you growing? If you're not growing, then you're staying still. You're static. You're stagnating. And the person who is not growing deserves a warning here in Luke, the 19th chapter and verse 20. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. He did not grow. He did not develop. He stayed the same. He was just self-satisfied. He was, in a sense, as we might say, Laodicean. He was just content without growing and changing and persevering. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you do not sow. This person was very opposite to, as we heard in the sermonette, uh, the hero, Ebed-Melech, who had courage. He stepped out to save and to help Jeremiah. We cannot be an unbelieving person because those will be in the lake of fire. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, verse 22, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You didn't grow. You didn't develop. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? So he was judged for not fulfilling his responsibilities. Have you ever listed your responsibilities? Do you ever pray about your responsibilities? What are they? You may be a son, a daughter. You have a godly responsibility with that particular role. You're a mother, your father, an employee, an employer, a student, a volunteer. And of course you go down all the list of our respons- biblical responsibilities and descriptors and identity of who and what we are biblically. And we are bond servants of Jesus Christ. I was listening to Dr. Meredith's uh, sermon in the, the car and the uh, CD about Jesus being our our Savior and High Priest and Friend. And we have that kind of relationship. We are sons and daughters of our Father in Heaven, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. He says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And God tells us that we're to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the temple of God's Spirit, as we saw at the beginning of the sermon. So what are your responsibilities? And I have to remind myself when I pray, well, Father, help me to fulfill my responsibilities as a minister of Jesus Christ, as a bondservant of Christ, as your son in the faith, and on and on and on. 
as many of those descriptors that I can think of. And he says, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And of course, the parable of the talents again tells us to fulfill our responsibilities. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That is Matthew 25, verse 21. So are you fulfilling your responsibilities? A mature person takes responsibility for his actions. An immature person blames everyone else and everything else when things, when things go wrong. You know, it's, uh, they start cursing the, the automobile uh, when they hadn't changed the tires. You know, I, I should have taken warning, and I've had to put my little lesson book to be alert to the uh, little signs and sounds coming from your automobile that might indicate something might possibly go wrong. And, you know, if you don't, then what happens? You know, the brakes fail or something else happens. And I've told you a story before. I was trying to set a world record, I guess, in my 51 Chevy driving back to uh, uh, Rensselaer from my home in Connecticut. It was about a two-and-a-half-hour two drive. And I had a 51 Chevy, and, and the back tires should have been replaced. They were pretty thin. They they lost quite a bit of tread. And uh, I was pushing it, and uh, it was a rainy day. I was going around a curve up in Massachusetts on the way to uh, Troy, New York. Went around a curve, and I couldn't hold it. And the car slid around, and this huge milk truck was coming in the opposite direction, and I crashed into it. I got sighted for failure to give right of way to the milk truck. I was fined $9. But the problem was those tires should have been replaced long ago. And, uh, you know, people blame, uh, oh, blame the police, blame the milk truck, blame every... No, I have to take responsibility for my action. It was my fault for not having replaced those tires. That's why it happened. And a mature person will take responsibility for his actions. He will confess his sins. You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, mature persons repent. Mature persons take responsibility for their actions. Mature persons fulfill their responsibilities. Number five, after fulfilling your responsibilities, is to live by Acts 20, verse 35. We heard about that in the sermonette about giving. Acts 20, verse 35. Again, it's a way of life. It's a way of thinking. It's not just uh, an idea that we think about once in a while. It is something that should be with us 24-7. It's the way we think. It's our attitude. It's our approach to life. Acts twenty thirty five. I have shown you in every way, the Apostle Paul wrote, or said in this case, by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, Dr. Meredith's sermon he gave just a few weeks ago, uh, Are You a Giver? That's number 533 in our sermon library. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote about emotional maturity, but it ties in with spiritual maturity and the way of giving. This was from the Good News of Tomorrow's World, personal from the editor Herbert W. Armstrong, 
March 1971. We actually had a Tomorrow's World magazine back in 1971, a Good News magazine and a Plain Truth magazine. This is what uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote. One of the basic things every human needs so vitally to learn is the right use of the human emotions. So you see the human mind has something vital to do with human emotions. Yet most people never give thought to controlling emotions with the mind. But our emotions need to be understood, taught, trained, and controlled by the mind. Our minds were given us for a purpose. Where is the logical and proper place to begin with such training? It ought to be taught to one, three, and six-year-olds, and in the early primary grades in school. That means this teaching ought first to be taught by parents in the home. But how can parents teach children when they themselves are still emotionally immature? How can elementary school teachers disseminate what they have never learned themselves? Just what is emotional maturity? One author defines it this way. Development from a state of taking to a state of giving and sharing. And uh, obviously, <clears throat> that was from Dr. Schindler's book on how to live 365 days a year. Because of the publication dates, I could identify that that was whom uh, Mr. Meredith was referring Mr. Armstrong continues, Mr. Armstrong was referring. There's also a spiritual principle involved, development from natural impulses and responses of human nature to the principle of loving one's neighbor as himself. Few realize it's a recipe for happiness. It is something that must be learned by the mind and developed by self-discipline. As I said, it is something you're not born with. Human nature is totally contrary to it. God's law is based on the giving principle. Its basis is love. So again, the way of life, of sharing and of giving, is a way to spiritual and emotional maturity. I might refer you to sermon number 249, Share Your Life. When you get that way of giving, you, you think about, well, I'm going to the store today. Well, can I take someone with me? Is there a widow who might be... Uh, want to, to go shopping, and I can share my life and help this person. And, of course, as, as young men, you might think, well, is there a co-ed over here that uh, needs uh, sharing of my life? You know, there are things where you, times when you can serve and help. I tried to do that in college when I uh, would go jogging around the track. I wonder, well, I'll call the girls' dormitory, see if I can help someone run around the track with me. <laughs> so... And, of course, giving to the poor is very important. Let's turn back there to Proverbs 19, verse 17. Proverbs 19 and verse 17. Of course, we have the church assistance fund, the tithe, which God says it should be for the poor, the stranger, <clears throat> the widows, the fatherless, and the Levites. But uh, Proverbs 19 and verse 17 is a promise. It's a law. He who has pity on the poor lends to the eternal. Now, I don't know if you've lent, uh, loaned money to anyone, uh, but you loan money to God, in essence, when you give to the poor. And he will pay back what he has given. And, of course, in the King, New King James, and he will pay back, the pronoun he is capitalized, meaning, and he, God, 
will pay back what he has given. I won't tell you the story, but I just remember one time I was kind of saying to God, well, you know, Father, I've given so much to this, you know, uh, into the poor, and, and uh, you know, nothing's come back. And, and uh, anyway, uh, I think in about a couple of weeks, a huge blessing uh, came my way, and I realized, well, God kept his word. He says, uh, whatever I gave, I was loaning to God, and he paid me back. It was a, a tremendous blessing. I won't tell you about it other than it was a blessing. <clears throat> and uh, let's turn to Luke 6, verse 38. Luke 6, verse 38. Now we're doing pretty well. I think we'll cover all seven, which we failed to do last time. Luke 6 and verse 38. We're talking about a way of giving that is a step towards spiritual maturity. Luke 6 and verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And of course, if those of you who go to ice cream stores, I, I haven't gone in some time, but uh, there in Mint Hill is a creamery, and they have really homemade ice cream and really good. And I'll, I'll order a pint of ice cream, and I'm watching. You know, she digs, she puts it out, and she's pushing it in there. I'm making sure, look, you better push that down real solid, and she put more in. Can you put a little more in? Well, God says here that if you give, that's what's going to come back to you. It will be a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. That's one of God's promises, one of His blessings. And again, as we give, we want to apply, as we heard in the sermonette, John fifteen thirteen. Greater love is no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, you are my friends if you keep my commandments, if you obey me. So key number five to spiritual maturity is live by Acts 20, verse 35. Number six, and again, we've given this principle many times, and we'll give it many times in the future. Mature individuals have a crusade. They have a goal. They have a motivation and a mission far above their selfish needs. So key number six is have your heart in God's work. Let's turn to Matthew 9 and verse 38. I think uh, Mr. Pyle gave a sermonette on this some time ago. Matthew 9. And verse 38, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we thank God that he is adding more donors, more co-workers. We need to keep praying that. But notice even before that, that Jesus was moved with compassion, verse 36, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And, of course, we want to make sure that whenever Jesus tells us to pray about something, that we pray about it. And I hope that many of you will. God is answering the prayers, our prayers, and adding to his church. And we're very thankful that the church attendance is up around 5%. And we're very thankful for that. So, number six is have your heart in God's work. And part of that is that we're praying for more laborers into the harvest. 
Of course, Christ gave the mission to the church, you know, Mark 16, 15, and Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, to preach the gospel to every creature, to go into all the world, to make disciples of every nation. And we had uh, a report recently about uh, Mr. Tyler. We had the uh, Council of Elders teleconference, and uh, Mr. Tyler reported on his visit to Malaysia and Indonesia and in the Philippines and, uh, and Thailand. And uh, one of our ministers, Mr. Uh, uh, Tyle Ho, uh, was gone for about three weeks because he was in the hinterland. And, uh, but he came back just in time to meet Mr. Tyler and uh, to meet them there. But uh, nonetheless, we have brethren scattered all over the world, and we need to keep them in mind, realize that we have a mission to the whole world. Is it true that if you have your heart in God's work, that you will grow spiritually? There's a cynic who said uh, one time, where's that in the Bible? You know, he, he wanted to disagree with the, the principle that you will grow spiritually if you have your heart in God's work. All I have to do is say, look, look at John 4, verse 34. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Your very essence, your very nutrition, your very source of energy, your food is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. That's where your energy comes from. That's where your spiritual growth comes from. And he goes on to say in verse 36 of John 4, And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. So you're participating in that work. I've given you this quote before, but I think it's very apropos and important at this point. Mr. Armstrong wrote in his co-worker letter of November 18, 1974, the principle of how you grow spiritually. And God has given us the work, quote-unquote, to do as the very means by which we may grow spiritually so we may enter His kingdom at Christ's coming in 47 years. I have observed that only those whose hearts are fully in the work continue to overcome and grow spiritually and endure. We were just talking at lunch the other day and even at brunch this morning with our guests about these various ministers who we thought were very solid and now have gone off the deep end into heresy. And we're wondering, how can that happen? How can someone who once embraced the truth, is now preaching heresy. I would venture to say one of the reasons is that that individual did not have his heart in the true work of God in preaching the gospel of the kingdom of the world as a witness. And I'm sorry to say, and it's just, just very sad, but it is a reality. Mr. Armstrong continues... I'll repeat that. In 47 years, I observed that only those whose hearts are fully in the work continue to overcome and grow spiritually and endure. Through the years, I, with those added for their part in the work, continued to announce the wonderful news of the coming kingdom of God and all that that message embodied. Never have we sought to get, but always to give the good news of God's truth. So number six is to have your heart in God's work. Where is your treasure? your treasure on earth, as Jesus said, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. 
That's Matthew 6 and verse 20. But as I've encouraged you before, I want to encourage all our Char charlatans. I've told you before how Dr. Meredith and I, and I think in one case, Mr. Partian went in a restaurant together, and this man recognized uh, Dr. Meredith and said, oh, hi, Dr. Meredith, I see you on television. Dr. Meredith said, yes, what channel do you watch us on? And Dr. Meredith was able to tell him, yes, well, we're on these other channels. We're on WGN Sunday morning at 6 o'clock. We're on WAXN uh, Sunday mornings at 7 o'clock. We're on uh, WHKY Monday uh, evening at 7.30 p.m. And all of us charlatans, and uh, you guests are welcome to uh, remember that as well, should know those three stations so that if you have the opportunity to introduce someone to tomorrow's world telecast you know what to tell them now tomorrow is uh, the 16th of august and we are starting a four-week test on vision network in canada and this is a wonderful open door right now we are on 530 across Canada on Vision Network, 5.30 Sunday afternoons. That's not prime time. We were on at 6.30, but then the Canadian content law came into place, and they bumped us back to 5.30. For some reason, we don't know why the exception, they have offered us prime time in Canada, 9.30 Sunday night. So that starts tomorrow, four weeks. We appreciate your praying about that, that that will be successful. And we, again, I hope that you have your heart in God's work and that you're responding to our request for prayer and that you're, of course, praying about the co-worker letter that I mentioned and uh, supporting to, uh, to uh, Living University as well as Tomorrow's World. Just uh, another way of sharing news in the work and uh, perhaps, uh, uh, let's, let's put it this way. How many of you at least... Once a day, use Twitter.com. You see your hands. Okay, not all. Okay, four or five of us. Some of us are bashful. We don't want to let others know. But we are the the tomorrow's world has a Twitter uh, account, and what we're trying to do, we have done it maybe two or three times a week, is to put news as it happens on the Twitter.com. And what we're going to try to do now is to put at least one Twitter, one tweet, which is 140 characters. It's 140 characters. That's why it's called Tweet and Twitter. And we're trying to give that what it is is instant news. And you can get instant news of what's happening in God's work by going on that Twitter.com. Uh, for example, we might have just finished the uh, uh, Council of Elders teleconference, and we'll put on the notice um, Mr. Rod King and Mr. Bruce Tyler were present in our uh, Council of Elders teleconference that just ended an hour ago. Wow, that's, you know, news hot off the press. So that's just one other way of being involved in what is going, in, going on with God's work. Mr. Herbert Armstrong said in the autobiography, in his last letter before he died, he said, continue to sacrifice through 1986 to finish the commission God has given His church. The greatest work lies ahead. Christ confirmed that in John 4.35, Say you not, there are four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. So Mr. Armstrong, contrary to those who 
spread uh, false uh, ideas that the work is already accomplished. We don't have to do anything. Mr. Armstrong's last letter, he said, the greatest work lies ahead. And we've been following in his footsteps, striving to preach the gospel to the world as Christ opens the doors. So key number six to spiritual maturity is have your heart in God's work. Key number seven is to love God and fear God. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. The Protestant view is once you love God, you no longer fear Him. Well, of course, there is a wrong kind of fear concept, which thinks that God is a, a harsh monster God uh, who terrorizes people. Well, that's not the kind of fear that God ever talked about. Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12. And now, Israel, <clears throat> what does the Lord your God require of you? Very important. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him. So fearing God and loving God are not mutually exclusive. They are complementary, and they are both required. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I commend you today for your good. A mature Christian both loves God and reverences God, fears God, has a great awe of God. The greatest reality is the existence of God and who and what God is. That He is love and He has a plan and purpose for every human being on the face of the earth. You love God by spending time with God in prayer and meditation. You love God by humbly learning from His Word. I'll refer to you, you to uh, three other sermons. Uh, you know, all these sermons you've heard perhaps, but sermon number 540 is Love God with Your Mind. How to Love God by Mr. Lambert Greer is uh, number 431. And The Great Commandment by Dr. Meredith is number 291. So when you love God and when you fear God, you know your identity. You know who you are. Because then you can become complete and you can come mature. There are the four proven keys of spiritual growth, you know. Prayer, Bible study, meditation, and fasting. I uh, found out recently, and I had known years ago, that at imperial schools, first graders were learning um, the Bible and learning uh, memorizing certain scriptures. And I'm very pleased to report that uh, many of you are learning the books of the Bible in the King James order, all 66. And, uh, of course, the principle is you need to know your Bible. You know, do you, as a pioneer Christian, as a king and a priest in training, do you know your Bible? Do you know all 66 books of the Bible? The imperial school students in first grade needed to know the days of creation. That's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They needed to know God's holy days from Leviticus 23. They needed to know the books of the Old Testament, first graders. They needed to know the books of the New Testament. This is first graders. And I'm pleased to report that 
45.8% of the Charlotte congregation can name all 66 books of the Bible. No, I I don't know. I'm just guessing. I I hope that it's more than that, and I hope that you can do better than that. I've referred you to Lesson 1 of the Bible Study Course, and, of course, the uh, Dr. Douglas Winnell's booklet on the Bible Factor Fiction. And in the center part of that booklet, you have the 22 books of the Old Testament in the original inspired order and the 27 books in the inspired order in the New Testament. So as I mentioned before, uh, those of you who are able to say the 66th book in the King James order uh, do receive a C grade. So congratulations. Uh, Those of you who can understand the inspired order of the Bible, you will achieve a B grade. And then you want to see an A uh, come, to, come to see me and I'll give you the assignment for achieving an A. But we do need to know that the Bible is the way God inspired it. And these first graders were able to know the Ten Commandments in the long form, the full form of Exodus 20. You know, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the eternal God which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. I won't continue with the rest of it, but if you want to see me later, I'll try to uh, recite it for you. But those were first graders. And I hope that all of us who are older can do better. I mean, if a 96-year-old can get a master's degree, I think those of us who are 40 and 50 and 60 can do much better as well. So there are those four proven keys of spiritual growth of prayer, Bible study, fasting, and meditation. And, of course, let's turn to Luke, the 18th chapter. It was the parable of the importunate widow, meaning importuning, that she pleaded with God, uh, actually pleaded with the unjust judge in the parable. But he draws the analogy of that, how if this widow got some kind of response from an unjust judge, how much more of a response will you get If you importune God, that is, you continually come before Him sincerely and heartfeltly and asking for His guidance and asking for answers to your prayers. So Luke 18, and let's start in uh, verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge, judge said. And shall God not avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him, though He bears long with them? So the implication is here that God's people are crying out to Him day and night. Verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? Well, brethren, if we're faithfully doing God's work, He will find people who have faith on the earth. If we're close to God, and Christ, he will find faith. Key number seven for growing spiritually is love God and fear God. We all have to face reality. We have to ask ourselves a hard question. Am I growing spiritually? Or am I flatlining? Am I just self-satisfied? Or am I prodding myself to grow and to develop? Let's turn to Second Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 17. Peter gives us an encouragement here, but he also gives us a warning. 
In 2 Peter 2, Peter is dealing with false prophets and false ministers who are coming into the church in his day and age. And again, Jude, of course, later wrote an emergency letter because of the extent of false prophets and false ministers. But here he also gives an encouragement and a warning in 2 Peter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. As the Apostle Paul said, take heed, he that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Don't ever think that you've got it made. You've got the promises that you have it made, and you have to claim those promises, and you have to persevere unto the end. And remember God's promises in Philippians 1.6 that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You've got that promise, and you've got that encouragement. You may go astray, but if you want God to bring you into his kingdom, he will not let you go too astray. He'll correct you in love, as he says in Hebrews, the 12th chapter. But the Apostle Peter is giving us a warning to remain steadfast. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Verse 8, 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. So thank God for His grace. That's His favor. That's His unmerited pardon. That's His blessings, His mercy. Thank God for His unconditional love for you. And realize that as Christ is the vine, that we are the branches, that we can bear much fruit. We can mature spiritually, we can and we must grow spiritually. We briefly discussed the five areas of maturity, physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual. We also saw that our Father in Heaven expects us to grow spiritually and to mature. And there are many ways of growing spiritually, and we discussed seven keys to growing. One was demonstrate concern beyond your own little world. Number two was to face reality. Number three was to bear one another's burdens. Number four was to fulfill your responsibilities. Number five is to live by Acts 20.35. Number six was to have your heart in God's work. And number seven was to love God and fear God. So brethren, let's grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ Pray that you can be conformed to the very nature and mind and image of Christ. Rejoice that you can be complete and mature in Christ. We all need to grow spiritually.